Test, oh yeah, that's way loud. All right, folks, let's gather around. We're uh, five minutes past our start time, so we need to get started. Got a lot of things to do here. Come on in, take your seats. Go ahead and bring your, your coffee, your Bibles, everything else that you think is worthwhile. A good attitude, Mike says. That's always helpful, isn't it? A positive attitude, right? Well, at least it's not the Norman Vincent Peale stuff. All right, folks, we are behind, so let's, uh, let's get going here. Okay, I think we have uh, something of critical mass, and we'll get started <laughs> with what we've got. Uh, a quorum, yes. Uh, let's go ahead and open with prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given us everything that we need in your word, that it speaks so clearly about who you are, about who we are, and uh, so uh, important to us. It speaks about how you are at work and have been from the very, very beginning to fix everything that we have messed up, to work to make us what you designed us to be, to show grace and love and compassion and mercy to a people who don't deserve it, to make us your very own. And we're so thankful that everywhere we look in Scripture, we see that. As a result of that, Father, we long to worship you, as we will be doing uh, in just a little while uh, later this morning. And we long to worship you in the way that is right. We thank you for your commandments that teach us that we are to worship you and how to worship you. And we pray that as we study that today that you would show us clearly what we need to know. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we continue, folks, in our look at the, at the uh, Shorter Catechism. I know you guys have it memorized, but for the sake of those who might be listening online and so on, you might want to look it up on your um, uh, apps if you want. There's also the Trinity Hymnal in front of you somewhere. Oh, you've got the little orange booklet. Yes. That was in my breast pocket all throughout seminary, that exact same edition. That was 30 years ago. I'm surprised they're even printing it and it looks like that. Did you take it out of my study? (laughs) All right. Um, Trinity Hymnal, I think somebody said 874 is roughly where we're at. I got the thumbs up for Margaret Ann, so that means we're good. Okay, so we were, we've been looking at, oh, this thing. I've got to lock those wheels because it wants to move every time. Every time we erase or do anything. Oh, I shouldn't have erased that. Oh, well. Uh, what we've been saying is we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, And we've said that there's a pattern for the Ten Commandments. It states what the commandment is in the catechism, and then it tells us what that commandment requires and what is prohibited. And so we are going to be doing those, uh, that in that order. Uh, Today we'll be looking at the second commandment, uh, primarily at what it requires. And we've said that the first four commandments are about worship. The first commandment is the object of worship. Who are you to worship? 
God and God alone. The second, the one that we're going to be looking at today, is the manner of worship, how we are to worship. That's a very important thing. If you came out of a Roman Catholic background, and interestingly enough, also a Lutheran background, because remember, Lutherans, uh, they had a lot of good things going for them. Martin Luther, um, uh, in, many, in many ways, uh, spearheaded and started the Magisterial Reformation. However, he spent half of that time running for his life. And so um, there's a lot of things that did not happen within, quote-unquote, Lutheranism and uh, moving away from uh, medieval practices and so on. And so if you look at the Roman Catholic Church and, um, and the Lutheran Church, you'll see that what they do is they have Ten Commandments, but they take the first commandment that we looked at a couple of weeks ago uh, and last week as well. Uh, you have to have no other gods before me, right? And they collapse that with this commandment that we're gonna look at in just, in just a moment. And they're doing so, well, you know what? Let's read the commandment so we know what it is. So let me ask somebody if you will read today uh, questions 49 through 50. You know what? We might as well read the whole kid and caboodle, although we're not going to cover the others. But so we have them in our mind. Could somebody read 49 through 50? And then I'm going to get someone else to read 51 through 52. Would somebody please read the next two then? All right, thank you, Rob, and thank you, Dennis, for reading that. So here we have the second commandment, and as you can see, especially in the answer to question 49, um, I'm sorry, um, uh, question 50, when it says what is required in the second commandment, the second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. It's telling us the way, the manner in which we are to worship. And what happens in, uh, as I was saying, in the Roman Catholic and Lutheran way of looking at things, they collapse commandments one and two, and it simply is, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven image. When, if you were to look, it's interesting, you would say, well, at least they get the content. Um, but if you were to look at a, the Roman Catholic catechism, it doesn't actually list, like our catechism does, the actual scriptural text. It gives little snippets. Sometimes like you see for kids, and you would think, well, 
maybe I'm looking at the kids' catechism for, Roman Catholic, for the Roman Catholic Church. No, I'm looking at the full uh, uh, Roman Catholic catechism. And what it does is, question or, or uh, commandment one, which is our commandment one and two, is simply, you shall have no other gods before me. And so it kind of drops out completely the second commandment. It assumes it's all wrapped up in it. The way they end up with 10 is they go to the, the 10th commandment that talks about coveting. And it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor your neighbor's wife, nor, and, and then they break it up and say that the first one says, uh, first, the first of those two, that the ninth commandment is do not covet your neighbor's wife, even though that comes second in the written text. And then the third, uh, the, third the second one is, uh, do not covet your neighbor's goods. And they kind of put all of that, that together. Well, we really don't need two commandments telling us not to covet. You can have one commandment that tells you not to covet anything. And that's in, in essence what uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, has and every Protestant church outside of Lutheranism has. Uh, but we do need two different commandments to tell us about the object and the manner of worship. Collapsing those, you actually lose something. So I'm just saying that in case you come from a tradition where it's numbered uh, the other way, and I really do, uh, and again, the scripture itself does not say commandment one, commandment two, but I do think it is uh, a rather big mistake uh, to do that. Who can we blame for that? Um, well, you can actually blame Augustine. Yes. Say again. Uh, why did he? Die? I have no. I wasn't there. But um, he. The funny thing is, for three hundred and something years. <laughs> say again. I had that, yeah, when, when Augustine decided to do that. For 300 years, uh, the, the tabulation of the Ten Commandments was the same as what we have today. And all throughout Jewish history, before the New Testament, it was also done the way that we have it in our churches. I'm not sure why Augustine decided to change it. He did. And then at the Reformation, uh, everybody outside of Lutherans put it back. The Eastern Church, which broke off from the Western, i.e. Roman Church, uh, in the middle of the 11th century, in 1054, uh, never changed either. So anyway, I just mentioned that if you come up from a Roman Catholic or Lutheran background, uh, it would uh, behoove you to make the switch. But let's actually get into what we're talking about today. Vitally important, because what we're talking about today is worship. And if you have gone through our newcomers class, and I'll put in a plug, our next newcomers class, if you're interested, is coming at first and second week of April. Uh, so sign up for that, but uh, if, you know that we talk a lot about worship because it's integral to the life of any church and every believer. It's the high line of, of what we do as believers, that it's the center of the life of any church. And so what we see in that second commandment on the how is vitally important. In fact, kind of rushed in here. Let me take a look and see if we, this is on the fly, so it's never a good idea to it just kind of do things on the fly. But if I can pull up Deuteronomy 8. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 12. And point you quickly to a verse. Uh, let's take a look in your Bibles, won't you? You can use the Pew Bible if you like or your own Bible. But take a look at Deuteronomy. Fifth book in the Old Testament. 
And let's take a look at chapter 12. Now, let me do a little bit of context here because this is important. Um, Of course, we live in a day and age where a lot of folks in the church, especially the evangelical church, don't look to the Old Testament. They believe that the whole of the Old Testament is abrogated. They may not even say that, but in practice, sometimes uh, folks just kind of, you know, we're New Testament Christians. No, uh, we accept the whole of Scripture. Now, there's a lot of things in the uh, Old Testament, uh, the ceremonial law that points to Jesus and aspects of that, like the sacrificial system that have been fulfilled in Jesus. We still read them because they teach us something about the nature of Christ. Well, what's happening here is that the Israelites are on the verge of crossing over into the promised land. They are at the river Jordan. Uh, Moses is very near the end of his life, and he is reading to them once again the law. That's why it's called Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. And uh, he is preparing them for their entry into the promised land. And so when he gets to Deuteronomy 12, he tells them what God has been saying about where and how they're going to worship. The where is part of how, if you think about it. How, you know, that kind of thing. And he says in verse 1, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. And then he goes on to tell them that when you go into a land, you're to destroy the idols and so on. So he's telling them, you don't do it this way. You don't do it the way you see these people doing it. That's an important point because we do lots of things today in worship as we're going to see probably more next week when we look at the prohibitions. There's a lot of things that we do that are very much uh, driven by the idols of this world. Things like um, you know, entertainment and all that other stuff. So he says in verse eight, and I'm just kind of spot reading here. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, right? So he's challenging them in that regard. There's a whole lot more here uh, that we can go on. But uh, if I can find it, let's see. He actually tells them where they're gonna worship. Uh, verse 10, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose, that's Jerusalem, he hasn't told them yet, uh, to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions, and so on and so on. And notice what he's telling them. There's gonna be a place that you're gonna go, and that's the place that you go. You don't get to choose where, This is the place, I'm gonna tell you where, and that's the place that you go, and this is what you do. You do everything that I command you, and you bring so on and so on. Uh, Now, the commands might have changed. Uh, We're no longer doing burnt offerings, we're doing other kinds of things, but the principle is still the same. The principle is simply this. Uh, This is something that theologians have given a name to. Anybody know what it is? Regulative what? What? Yes, often called the regulative. Principle of worship. And it's this idea that the scripture, or God himself through the scripture, regulates our worship. Sometimes in the, the older terms still used occasionally is the prescriptive. Principle of worship. Basically says that scripture prescribes how to worship. And so it simply is this. True worship, false worship. 
And in the regular principle of worship, it says, what God commands, this might be a little too small, sorry. That says what God commands. This is the sum of everything that God commands. That is true worship. And false worship is whatever God did not command. And that basically is this principle. Uh, There's different ways you can put it. You can put it that God prescribes true worship and everything that God does not prescribe is forbidden. That's one way of looking at it. Everything that is not clearly stated in Scripture is forbidden. Um, Let me get back to my notes here. What this view basically does is it introduces a simplicity of worship because what Scripture Uh, does state for worship is rather simple. Uh, We call those, and I'm going to get back to this in just a moment, we call those the elements of worship. So you're talking about things like reading of Scripture, preaching of Scripture. Interestingly, uh, and by the way, if you ever want more detail, all this is listed in great detail in the confession. Remember, the catechism is just a training tool for kids. Uh, The confession is a broader expression of that. Uh, Chapter 21 of the Confession lists all these elements, again, using that term. And it talks about the reading of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, the hearing of Scripture, the careful hearing, listening to sermons and so on. Uh, It lists praying. In fact, praying is the very first one that it mentions. Uh, The number one thing that's missing in virtually all services today is the number one thing that we see all throughout Scripture is prescribed. Uh, it talks about singing of uh, uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the sacraments, and occasional elements, that is, uh, elements that only on occasions are used, things like oaths and vows, like when somebody gets married or when somebody becomes a member and take, takes membership vows or you know, baptismal vows, those sorts of things. So what this does is it introduces a simplicity of worship that can really be replicated anywhere. It doesn't need to have... Uh, you know, special material, special accoutrements, doesn't need to have special garments, special buildings. You could do it in a building simple like this. You can do it, you know, on, on the beaches of Hawaii. You can do it in, um, you know, in a grass hut or in a, in a uh, you know, um, open air or something, or, you know, in, on the plains of uh, the, the savannah in, in Africa. You can do it in, in a cathedral if you want to, but None of those things affect the actual worship because it's just those simple elements, if that makes sense. But most of evangelicalism looks at this rather differently. They say that true worship is... uh, Let me... How do I want to write this quickly? Yeah, you know what? I'm going to do what I was going to do. So their understanding is that true worship is whatever God does not forbid. And false worship is 
only what God forbids. That's false. So in the regular principle of worship, worship is only whatever God prescribes. Whatever God does not prescribe is forbidden. But in the standard view that you see in in most mainline Protestant churches today, evangelical churches, though this did not used to be the case, and the Roman Catholic Church is, is if God doesn't forbid it, then it's allowed. So uh, if you go to a Roman Catholic Church, for example, since we've been talking about them, at least initially, uh, they'll tell you God forbids the use of, uh, um, God forbids the worship of Baal. You're not to put up an image of Baal. That's very clear in the Old Testament. So if you go into a Roman Catholic church, you will not find an image of Baal. But it says absolutely nothing about an image of Mary. So that's allowed because that's not been forbidden. And of course, it's so easy to sit there and say, well, yeah, that's the Roman Catholics and yeah, we're Protestants and throw stones at them. Now we turn our attention to the broader evangelical world where perhaps many of us have, uh, have come from and what we find is that that same principle is pretty much uh, in place. Scripture doesn't say anything about forbidding entertainment, forbidding um, spotlights and rising dioceses with you know, um, liquid nitrogen you know, smoke and all that other stuff. So why not do it? And we laugh, except they're doing it, right? And that kind of thing. So uh, it's, it's very much um, the case nowadays that <clears throat> you have, what I should have done here really is I should have put a, cent, a, a circle. What, whatever God commands, and then they have another circle, whatever God does not forbid. And both of those they would view as as being part of true worship. So it's a much broader, much wider um, kind of anything goes. Uh, but let's, so let's take a look at a couple of um, scripture passages and begin to kind of see why it is that we say the regulative principle is in place. I already looked at Deuteronomy 12, which I think is pretty, um, pretty conclusive. But there's a, a couple of other things I think that really matter. And the thing is that well, let me ask you this. First of all, let me stop here and just say any questions or just comments about those two different views and how they're presented? Nope, all crystal clear? Okay. Um, why do you think, because what, what, when we present that to a lot of people, the number one objection that always comes up is that this is what? stifling, that this is limiting. This is almost invariably what you hear, right? This limits worship, that this stifles worship. Now, before we can answer that objection, we have to ask the question then, in what way is it stifling? In what way is it limiting? And for us to be able to answer that, we have to answer a deeper question, which is, what is worship? So maybe somebody can dive in and tell me what worship is. And it's not meant to be a trick question. Uh, however you want to put, I mean, I don't know. What you want to, d- say again? Okay, but is that all worship is? So what, what do we do when we gather here in just a few minutes? 
Okay, those are the elements. But I'm, I'm trying to, to get, yeah, uh, so it is dialogical. It's a dialogue between God and man. Okay, so I wanna, I, I wanna just kinda, as I said, it wasn't meant to be a trick question. So all those answers are correct, but yes, I'm trying to get to that. We are to give God the glory. We are to praise him. What should we be praising him for? His mighty acts, everything. So if we wanna unfold everything, his mighty acts is one. So usually we like to say who he is and what he does, right? Who he is in his character, his acts. You know, th- so we, we want to praise him. We want to elevate, lift up, glorify our God, right? Now, if we take the, the view that's not the regular principle, the one that says anything that's not forbidden is allowed, why might that be problematic Who is driving the bus in this broader definition of worship? We are. In other words, God tells us here in the regular principle of worship what he wants. I want this, 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 this. Now, if we really are wanting to worship him, to elevate him, don't you think he knows what that would be? What else also does he know about us? We are naturally what? Sinners, and in particular, idolaters, right? We love to make idols out of anything and everything, right? John Calvin once said that we're like, our hearts are like, uh, like idol factories. We just crank them out, ding, 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 and out they go. So God actually protects us by limiting us to what actually is not idolatrous. But when you let your imagination run, then you can begin to put in place whatever you want, whatever you think is right, and unless you can claim to be sinless and your mind is perfectly in accord with God, then you're likely to come up with something idolatrous. In fact, basically the scriptures we read out of Deuteronomy 12 makes clear that it's going to be because you are not to do things other than what I prescribe, which is what we read in a couple of the verses. And if you want to go back this afternoon and read Deuteronomy 12 carefully, you'll see that it gets repeated again and again in different ways. Don't do what they're doing. Do only what I tell you. Don't add to it. In fact, he ends the chapter by saying don't add or take away from what I command for worship. So what's at stake is nothing less, nothing more, but nothing less than idolatry and whether our worship will be idolatrous. Now, uh, John Calvin preached, since I already quoted him, let's bring him back in. I should have looked it up, but he uh, preached the sermon on Deuteronomy 12 where he brought up an objection that is still very much relevant today. And that is, how can God say that? Because what if I come with sincerity and I bring all these other things, but I am sincere of heart, I am zealous, and so on. And, um, and the quote basically says, I get it but it doesn't matter. It's no less an idol, you know, no, no matter what. So think of the golden calf that we read about also in Exodus. Out comes the golden calf. Who, who was that golden calf representing? Yahweh, right? It, it wasn't Baal. It wasn't, Aaron says, here is your God who brought you out of Egypt, but we're not to worship him in, you know, in an image, in a calf, or anything like that. The people may have been very sincere, but it made it no less idolatrous. 
So when we decide to do plays and dance numbers and, uh, you know, whatever else, uh, you know, we're doing, when the pastor comes out and, you know, and he's uh, doing a skit or, you know, all the kind of silliness that we do see nowadays, maybe they're very sincere. Maybe they're absolutely, you know, zealous. It's no less idolatrous. No less idolatrous. And so, um, let's see, I don't want to say anything more about that because of our time. So let me just hold off there. Uh, this is not a whole class on worship. I just want to touch this. So any questions or comments on this stuff? No, you guys are surprisingly mellow today. There we go, there we go. I think you're all recovering from the daddy-daughter dance on Friday. Yeah, um, so what I was saying is that the regular principle of worship says that true worship is only what God commands. False worship is everything that God does not command. But in that broader view that many Christians hold to today, true worship is what God commands and anything else that God does not forbid. And then the false worship is only what God forbids. So then their view, worship is whatever God has not forbidden is allowed. Whereas we would say, uh, whatever God has prescribed, and only that is allowed. Does, yeah, true, false. Yeah, in other words, if you want the, you want, if you want the true understanding of true, false, look at the black only. The distorted view of, of what is true and false is these two together, and this one only, so, yeah. Uh, so we have these elements that are, uh, yeah, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, I'm going to deal with that next week when we look at the, the question on what does uh, the commandment prohibit, and, um, and it prohibits images and so on. So I'll unpack that a little bit more next week, Lord willing. Uh, but it is a good question. So, you know, one of the things that we see in, uh, in, the, in the wrong view is not only do we, um, certainly it is idolatrous, certainly a person can be sincere, but what you basically see is this desire that we often have to invent and to add and so on. And all these different things that we think that, you know, might add to a worship service, right? You see, uh, you start the worship service. I've been in churches like this. You have two. In comes the procession, and they come in. You know, everybody's lined up. And it's not just the choir that processes, but, you know, the, the various acolytes and pastors and priests and, you know, whatever. And one of them is carrying a Bible, Another one is carrying a cross, and I've seen that in Reformed churches. Um, not those that are Napark churches, but in, uh, well, that's not true, too. Um, the denomination that I used to be in had some folks doing stuff like that. And so, you know, they, they spend this time processing in with, uh, with candles and, and Bibles. And say again? Uh, absolutely. 
mainline Presbyterians do it and many others uh, do that kind of stuff. And so there's all this pomp and all this circumstance and so on. And where I'm going with that is none of that helps you understand God better. That really is your, your, your key. Does the presence of this or the absence of this do anything to elucidate what Scripture teaches? And that's an important way of trying to think about that when you, when you look at it. Um, John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So there's this idea that our worship is spiritual. It's not dependent on all these objects. When you see the people bringing in these objects that almost lend itself to veneration in many cases and so on, it's getting us away from that. Uh, When I was still in church planting at one time, um, well, uh, actually, uh, this was after I had finished church planting, but I was now working uh, as um, one of the guys who coached and helped church planters. This is some 10 years ago. And I went to a key leaders conference in uh, Phoenix, I think is where we had it that year. Can't remember. But um, anyway, we had a key leaders M&A conference, Mission to North America, which is the church planning arm of the PCA. And uh, there was a guy who was fairly new who had uh, just become the head of the church planning network for the Rocky Mountain Presbytery. And he said, hey, you're the liturgy guy. I was like, because most of the churches in M&A were very, um, you know, guitars and drums and all that. And, and it, uh, nothing wrong with guitars and drums. If you go through our newcomers class, you'll hear that. The only reason we don't do that is because you've got to choose a style that's appropriate. And you can have appropriate styles with guitars and drums. We just don't hear, that's all. But for whatever reason, that's how I've been known. So he, he's like, I have some questions. I'm trying to move in certain directions, especially with doing weekly Lord's Supper. Okay, now that's what they think of when they think of, you know, liturgy. So let's, yeah, let's sit down and talk. So we have lunch with this dude, and he's telling me, I'm having a lot of trouble with one of my elders. Uh, he's been really resisting what we've been wanting to do with the Lord's Supper. I'm like, okay, what's going on? He says, well, you know, we're, we didn't used to do the Lord's Supper except every whatever, whatever, but now we want to do it weekly. Okay, okay. Is he objecting to that? Well, not, not so much. Uh, you know, what happens is we put the elements out here before the beginning of the service and so on, and then when the service begins, I come in, so there's your procession, mine. And I genuflect to the elements, and then I sit down, and I'm like, time out. And now, genuflect may not be a word that's in everybody's vocabulary. If you come from one of those churches, you'll know. But genuflect means you kneel in reverence too. So what he does is he comes in, and he sees the elements, and he bows to it, and then he goes, and he sits, and then worship goes on. And he's wondering why this elder, who's arrived from another PCA church, is not getting it. So I had to kind of go back and say, let's start with Worship 101 and walk this pastor who is the head of church planting for the entire Rocky Mountain Presbytery through the basics of the regulative principle and what is actually required for teaching elders in the PCA as it is for us here in the OPC. So rather amazing uh, but this, those kind of things do happen. And so we see that creeping more and more. And this whole idea that God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and, and in truth, as Jesus says to the woman of the well in John chapter four, really tells us you can't invent what you want because that becomes false. It is a spiritual type of worship that can be done. You don't need a cathedral. You don't need an organ, nor a piano, nor any of those other things. That does bring up the next thing I do want to talk about. 
Oh, uh, let me read one other passage from Acts 17. Paul is speaking to the people on Mars Hill. He says, The Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he worshiped with men's hands. Again, highlighting that spiritual worship, just in case you want to uh, look up that passage. But what we do get in, um, in the confession that I want to bring out here, chapter 21, is something that's helpful because, as I said, some people will begin to think, our worship is so limiting, and we don't have the great you know, this and that and all that other stuff. Now, you, you, you can go to some churches where they have beautiful organ music and stained glass windows and you know, cathedrals, and all those things are very moving. Would they move a Christian's heart? Would they move a non-Christian heart? How many unbelievers sit there and say, that was beautiful, but it was the music, it was the organ, it was all that. So that tells you right away that that in and of itself is not the factor. That's the thing you want to, am I saying don't use beautiful organs or, you know, let's get musicians who screech instead of sing well? No. No, you, you can do, and that is actually something, um, let's see, can I erase this? Is, do, we got that principle pretty much down. One of the things that the um, confession does that's very helpful so that we don't develop an inferiority complex. Oh, we're so limited. Oh, they get to do everything. I think the key answer to that is first and foremost to show that God in one sense does want true worship to be limited to those things because otherwise it becomes idolatry. But there's something else that we can also mention and that is that the confession makes a distinction between two things. Elements that we've already talked about and those elements, prayer, Word, and again, that's reading, preaching, even hearing is listed. Singing. Sacraments. Which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then the occasional elements, things like oaths and vows. Those are elements. But there's also something that we call circumstances. And what I want to do with our time remaining is kind of unpack that a little bit. Circumstances is basically um, things that are not prescribed elements, but which you must be able to, you must in some way figure these out if you're going to do this. So for example... When do we meet for worship? Sunday, but that's prescribed. It's not a circumstance. So, but when on Sunday do we meet? 10.30. Does the scripture say 10.30? So if we decided to meet at 2 p.m., would that be okay? Sure. That's a circumstance. You don't fight battles over the circumstances, right? Uh, What are we using to light the sanctuary? Incandescent lights. If we use candles, would that be a problem? Huh? Logistically, that's, you know. But there, we, do, we do one service, usually a year, where we do that. Based on what you've just read, 
So like time, things like, um, what do I want to call this, uh, environmental, right? Are you meeting in a building? Are you meeting in a pavilion? You know, that, are you meeting with nothing over you? Environmental factors. Um, I'm going to get back to the question I had in just a moment, but some other things that it tells us where to read the word. Does it tell us what order we're to read it? So if I gave you a lectionary and said we're going to read every three years through these sections, year A, B, and C, as many churches do, it's not necessarily wrong for a church to determine that. But what if they say this is what you must do? That's a problem. Okay. It doesn't tell us what we're to read. Does it tell us how many songs we should sing? So if you have three songs, you have five songs? Okay. You see how that works. So um, frequency, let's put in things like frequency. All those are circumstances. Uh, you know what else is circumstances? Dress. Right? So on things like the environmental, I was talking about candles. I want to use that as a test. I can light these, we can light the sanctuary with incandescent lights. We can light it with natural lighting. We can light it with candles. When do you think one of those moves from circumstance to element? You've probably seen it. Yes, Tanya. Uh, okay. Yeah. Have you ever seen that in some worship services? Say again. Well, you could certainly, if you do a light show, I'm thinking of something much more uh, supposedly innocuous, but it's done with so much zeal. Unity candle. Yeah, perhaps you've been there. And uh, remember, a wedding is nothing but a worship service. And um, this idea then that you're going to take one candle and the other candle. And if you've done this, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to step on your toes. I'll talk about just how God forgives in just a moment. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he, you know, we bring those two candles together and they become one. That's, that's essentially a sacrament because you're saying is that there's symbolic, you know, uh, imagery in this leading. And so you've introduced an element into worship. The candle is not the problem. It's the use. Uh, suppose we can come up with something with incandescent lights that turn it into an element. But that's when you get into trouble. Which brings up, because our time is just about gone, a couple of things I want to talk about. First of all, uh, most of the church today is, is, is messing up its worship. We already kind of determined that. There's a couple of things to watch out for. One is, if we do have a better understanding, and I think we do, the one thing we must not do is walk around thinking we have a better understanding of worship and all those others. If we understand that better today than others do, it is only by grace. It is only because God has enabled us to see that. It is only because he's kept us. And no Reformed church gets it right 100% of the time anyway. So no church is 100% pure. Confession even says that in its theology or in its practice. So we are not to think of ourselves as superior and so on. And uh, I think there's something, that, I wonder if I can find it. Uh, G.I. Williamson had a comment to make about this, and he was talking about the form of worship, if you can have a perfect form. He says, we must not assume that God is pleased with us just because we have a pure form of worship, nor are we to assume that God cannot accept others merely because they do not have a pure form of worship. 
After all, no church is perfectly pure, even in, the form, in its form of worship. And whenever God accepts sinners, it is in spite of their sin and perfection. So a little humility is what we, we need as we contemplate that. He goes on, so God may well be more pleased with those who have sincere and repentant hearts, even though their form of worship is less pure than with those who have a purer form of worship but are less zealous in heart. Nevertheless, we ought to strive for nothing less than a pure worship that is also zealous. So I want to put that into place. Um, even though he says God may, more, may, may be more willing to accept uh, somebody who is sincere in heart, does not remove the comment that I made earlier, that just because you're sincere, it's good worship. On the contrary, it's not good worship. Just because you're sincere if you're not following what Scripture says. But what G.I. Williamson is simply saying is that God does forgive. But it is a sin that needs forgiveness. And so once we've been made aware of that, we don't want to continue doing something that is wrong. But I think G.I. Williamson's caution is very important, that we don't walk out of here thinking, oh, we have a pure form of worship at Christ Presbyterian, you know, and that we begin to, real, we begin to put our trust in the pure form of worship. If you get the, the, the slight, see how easily we make idols? Rather than in the one whom we're worshiping through this pure form of worship. So it's little things that sometimes we have to uh, watch out for. And I'll just simply end, I know we're, we got started late and I just uh, don't want to drop this. This commandment ends with, um, actually this is a whole sermon, Command, ends with something that's rather interesting because after it tells us that you, know, you should now bow down to images and so on, it says, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of those who hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them who love me and keep my commandments. What an interesting ending. And what it basically tells us is that there are consequences for our children. And you might say, wait a minute, is that God looking and saying, I'm gonna strike these kids down? And all? No, but worship, as we said, is the highlight of the life of the church. It is the central thing that human beings do, full stop. Worship is what we were created for. So there is nothing more important that you can teach your kids than worship. And I don't mean that you teach them just Things like to come in and to sit down and to, you know, do, that's important. But we're talking about worship in its fullest sense. The most important thing you can teach them is that God is the one worthy of worship and so on. And when you teach them how to worship him right, then you are preparing your child for all of life. Because if they really know who this God is and how to worship him, which means that they also recognize that salvation comes through him alone, that there's forgiveness of sins and all that, no matter what else happens to your child, He's set or she's set for life. And by life, I mean forever, eternity in life, right? There are consequences when we don't do that. And those consequences carry over. We're gonna see next week, I'm gonna just briefly um, just mention this now. Like, for example, the introduction of images. And you might say, well, yeah, the Roman Catholic people, yeah, they put up statues and they bow down to them. Okay, and what about us? Do we not make use of images, Right? The chosen, am I ringing any bells? Is that, okay? The generation that introduces images into Sunday school, well, it's just to be used. Their kids then introduce images into worship because they didn't learn. What you taught them in Sunday school is what they're gonna grow up, right? Uh, It's interesting that, um, oh, why am I drawing a blank? Bill Hybels, Bill Hybels who created Willow Creek Church, you, you know, um, uh, seeker-sensitive, friendly, you know, seeker-friendly church. 
And then about 10 years ago, 12 years ago now, maybe 14, he basically said, we got it all wrong. For the last 25 years, we've been doing it wrong. Uh, they were not doing the things that you should have in worship because they wanted to bring in unbelievers. But then as, he, as was pointed out to him and he since has said, you keep them with what you bring them in with. You, or the way they put it, you keep them with what you hook them with. So if you teach your child these things, that's what they're gonna continue doing. And same thing in a worship service. You bring people in with a certain amount of things. You, you keep them with what you brought them in with. So it seriously affects your children. And that promise there is that it will, not that God's gonna sit there and say, I'm going to take this innocent child and just zap them for the, you know, and his kids you know, to the third and fourth generation. But that generally speaking, when you corrupt, and that's the word, when you corrupt that understanding in your child, it will affect them for generations, them and their children and so on. When you teach them proper worship, then there's a multitude of blessings because they understand who God is. They understand what God is doing. They understand how to approach God. I'm gonna leave it there just because of our time. But there's a whole lot more we could say on that subject alone. But it's an important warning that's included right in that commandment. Okay, uh, again, there's a whole lot here. Let me stop here. Questions or comments about any of this, whether this last section on kids or anything we've talked about. Very good point. Um, lighting something is a circumstance. We play music, we use a piano, we could be using something else. Uh, we have singers and so on. When, it, when the object itself gains uh, significance where it itself is communicating something, right? If so if we were to do something like on that, in that service where we, during the service, say, the lighting of each candle now represents, and we're going to do this, and you know that, when it becomes, when, when the actual act takes on significance, like for example, I'm wearing this, right? Uh, what am I wearing, jeans, this and that. I can also choose to, if, if I came in here with a houndstooth jacket with uh, elbow pads and a catalog carrying case, people don't do catalog carrying cases anymore. But you know, it's stuff they used to use for heavy books, and I grow a long beard and I walk like this when I come in. That communicates something about who I am. If I come in with an Italian, you know, three-piece suit with the best Italian shoes and, you know, and all that, that communicates something. Everything is going to communicate something. So you can't get away from the fact that, you know, we do certain things like, uh, uh, and I'll say this, that one of the cautions that we need to do is you can be overzealous on the regulative principle. Um, when I first got here, they didn't want to have any of these things. You know, the previous pastor and others will do the same. It should all be white. It should be, well, the regular principle doesn't say walls have to be white. That's us thinking culturally that white is blank. Does that make sense? But can you imagine a culture where white has significance? Where, oh, they painted it white. That means, you know, so you see, you've got to paint it something. Or even if you don't paint it, that's a choice but in and of itself does not have significance. Does that mean that we should be not careful? No, I want to think about how I dress. So you know, I don't want to come in here in jeans and shorts and flip-flops because that communicates something that I don't want to communicate. So we do want to be clear you know, about what we're doing in that regard. But the minute that, becomes, that, that thing becomes an actual right, R-I-T-E, that's when it crosses over into an element. But my dress is a circumstance. I want to be wise in the use of my circumstance. 
uh, how many songs we sing is a circumstance. I don't want to put 16 songs into, a, you know, into our service. We never get out of here, right? That's, but, so you want to be wise in the use of your circumstances. We don't want worship at 4 a.m. That's not wise for most of us, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, does that help? It's the idea that one candle, one other candle, they're separate candles until they come together and now they become one candle. So yeah, it's one individual, another individual, and in marriage they become one. Because we speak, and, and the imagery is beautiful, but imagery like that, God has given us two, Lord's Supper and baptism. We have essentially introduced a sacrament when we do a unity candle. Because that's, that's what a sacrament is. It's, it's outward signs of a spiritual reality. Sorry? Tying of the hands. I, must, I did not know that. Yeah, there, there's a lot of things where you can start going squirrely. So, yeah, no doubt. And again, we can all be very sincere. But, April, you've been very patient. Right. But Church of Christ, Reformed Presbyterian Church. Right. No, what they would say, and uh, so RPCNA, Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, um, Church of Christ and some others believe in what we would call exclusive psalmody, only the psalms. We believe in an inclusive psalmody. We sing the psalms as part of other things that we sing because Ephesians and Colossians both sing about, both say singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which our brothers in those churches do some, I think, rather tortured exegesis to try to say that all three of those mean psalms. Pretty much 99.9% of the rest of the Christian church has disagreed on that point. But the important thing there is that those churches, those brothers who do that, are looking to the regulative principle. And that brings up an important point, which is, if you are looking to Scripture and saying what's prescribed, what they say is that there's no prescription for instruments. They look at the Old Testament, and they see instruments being used in temple worship, and their view is that because it's temple worship, and the temple itself has been abrogated, because Jesus is the temple, the sacrificial system has been abrogated, because Jesus' uh, substitutionary death, then instruments are also abrogated. Now, there's an argument, and I think a pretty strong one, against that. Um, But what you recognize, and you have to give them credit, is that they are trying to apply this principle. It's a matter of interpretation. We, in the OPC, the PCA, and just about every other NAPARC church other than RPCNA, believe that our interpretation does allow for instruments and does allow for songs that are not exclusively psalms from the Old Testament. But they are trying their best and they believe that their interpretation 
is still the correct application. Of the, uh, so there we recognize them as brothers who are trying to do that. They're just different in the interpretation. So um, I'll give you an example. I had a friend of mine who in his church used liturgical dance. But he strongly believed in this principle and he thought he can go to the Psalms and show that you know, David dancing and so on. So while I could disagree with him, and I think we have a pretty strong argument against it, he was attempting to apply that. So I think there's a huge difference between those who are trying to do this like we are trying to do it and we might differ in interpretation and those for whom it doesn't even occur to them. Just whatever God forbids, that's the only thing we don't do, but everything else is allowed. So I, I, where I draw the line is I put them in the camp of those who are trying to follow the regulative principle. I just might differ with them on the interpretation. Okay, I think we really need to stop. It's 10.15. Uh, let me pray with you all quickly and we'll, we'll let you go. Father, thank you for speaking to us so clearly about who you are and what you've done for us, including speaking to us about how we're to worship you. Uh, may we always look at brothers and sisters with charity. May we always examine our own hearts for ways in which we have chosen to put in our own preferences and our idols and help us, Father, to indeed work together towards pure worship. Thank you for the forgiveness you can, that you give for uh, all the things that we do that are wrong. And thank you that in the end you accept us based on Christ and his perfection and not our attempts. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.